I really want to pick up on some of the themes both from uh, Lord Howe and from uh, Shane's uh, excellent uh, presentation. And really to echo what I said right at the beginning, I do genuinely believe these are the most radical reforms to the NHS uh, since uh, its in inception. Uh, ambitious, uh, bold, uh, risky, lots of opportunities, but many real challenges too. And it's a cliche, but yet the devil really is in the detail in making GP commissioning work. And despite the consultation document on commissioning, a lot of that detail is missing. So it's very helpful to hear Lord Howe say this is a real consultation. The views that are fed in from you and from others will make uh, a difference. And I want to really develop that theme in my uh, presentation because it seems to me the radicalism of the white paper and the reforms is very much represented by GP commissioning linked to the abolition of PCTs and strategic health authorities. If you go back over the last 20 years, start with the internal market and then the further iterations we've had since then, I think there's a fair consensus that uh, throughout that period of time, commissioning has often been the weak link in those uh, reforms, partly because of skills shortages, which world-class commissioning has begun to address, but I would say much more because of the inherent difficulties of really commissioning healthcare on a world-class basis. When world-class commissioning first came in under uh, Mark Britton and the previous uh, uh, government, uh, uh, I often said that if we ever achieved world-class commissioning, it would be a world-class first, because I did a piece of work commissioned by the uh, West Midlands uh, SHA about three or four years ago. They asked us, when I was in my previous role, to look at the evidence and international experience around commissioning. Where would you go to see examples of excellence in healthcare commissioning? And we surveyed the evidence from North America, from Australasia, from parts of Europe and uh, other countries too. And the bottom line conclusion... Uh, then, and I'd say uh, now, is it, in no healthcare system is healthcare commissioning done consistently well. And that doesn't mean to say you can't find examples that we can learn from in other countries, but they are precisely that. They are examples rather than system-wide uh, illustrations that we can perhaps adapt and, and learn from. And the reason for that, if I can just be uh, academic and wear my uh, professorial hat for a moment, is... Uh, to be found, I think, in a branch of economics called uh, transaction cost uh, economics. This is the branch of economics which looks at what circumstances uh, is it appropriate to use contracts, market-based relationships to, if you like, build up a commissioner-provider system, as opposed to what kind of circumstances would you want to internalise uh, work through a hierarchy rather than work through a contractual arrangement. And uh, people like Oliver Williamson and Coase and uh, Nobel laureates in economics have written extensively in this area. And uh, if I can summarise a vast body of theory in a couple of sentences and probably do nothing like justice to it, uh, the argument goes when you're talking about uh, manufacturing or markets in things like car components or indeed if you're thinking about building projects, yes, that is where markets and contracts work because you can define the product, you can write a complete contract and a commissioner has confidence that they can work effectively in those kinds of markets. In other areas of which healthcare is perhaps the best example, it isn't that simple. 
because of the diversity and the complexity of the products involved in healthcare, the many different kinds of patients, their diagnoses, their treatments, and how on earth could you write a complete contract as a commissioner that would give you the comfort of uh, not being taken to the cleaners, if I can use colloquial language, by the providers who've got a lot of the knowledge. There's this real information asymmetry in healthcare markets which make it very difficult to operate a contractual uh, commissioner provider system of the kind that does work really well in many other areas where the products can be defined much more uh, precisely. So the theory would say, in those sorts of circumstances, you probably are better working in a much more integrated way with commissioners and providers coming together rather than using a market-based contractual system. Now, clearly that is not the direction we're going in, but I just wanted to put that down as a marker at the beginning of this discussion, not to develop the theory, but to say we have a few mountains to climb if we're going to make a commissioner-provider system work better this time round, and not because of the inadequacies of GPs or managers who will be supporting GP commissioners, just because it's damn difficult to do well because of the nature of healthcare and healthcare products and uh, markets. And so the question for us today, and no doubt for the next uh, three or four years, is can GP commissioning succeed where primary care trusts, total purchasers, GP fund holders did not succeed to the extent that policymakers at that time hoped indeed they would? And that's where the paper that I wrote uh, in my previous role that was published in, in June this year, Lessons from Across the Pond and from the NHS, uh, is relevant, I hope, to our discussion today and you can get it as a free download from the University of Birmingham Health Services Management Centre uh, website. I'm not going to go through this in detail. I thought for today's purpose, because I've got limited time, what I do is highlight six key lessons and then make one other point before I pass back to, to Candace and the uh, other speakers. So six key lessons from previous NHS experience, and we've got a lot of it over 20 years, and from looking at the US, because in the United States, uh, there's been quite a long history from managed care onwards of physicians coming together in medical groups, and they are very variable in their shape and size and the arrangements they work under, to take responsibility for capitated budgets to engage in what some people call risk contracting, analogous to what GP commissioning will do under the white paper and the next phase of reforms. So what are the six key lessons to identify? And much of this, I'm sure, will not surprise you, but it's worth keeping on coming back to these key points. First one is, as Shane has already emphasised, the importance of both GP leadership and excellent management support which then requires sufficient uh, resource in terms of the management allowance made available to GP commissioners to enable commissioners to bring in, whether from the independent sector or from PCTs or from elsewhere, the people and the skills they need to undertake commissioning effectively. And various figures are being banded around. I'm sure we'll talk about that during the course of today. But if it's going to be, let's say, around £10 per head, Will that be enough if you look at how much is spent to support medical groups and other similar examples in other countries? Debate and discuss. Second key point is that size matters. And the way I'd summarise this is that while small is beautiful, scale is necessary. 
And what I mean by that is scale is necessary when it comes to managing risk, uh, managing financial risk, particularly the cost of relatively rare, uh, expensive treatments that may not be predictable, but where you require a certain population size to be able to cope with that risk. The problem is, if you look back to some of the evidence around total purchasing, we know that the larger total purchasing groups were often less effective in making a real impact on behalf of patients than the smaller ones because it takes time and effort to negotiate with a larger number of colleagues in a bigger, in this case, GP commissioning consortia than with a relatively small group. Again, Shane alluded to this in his uh, presentation. So can we do both, get the virtues of smallness and proximity, a familiarity of working with colleagues in other practices that we're comfortable with and also get the benefits of scale to enable us to manage risk. I presume what we're envisaging in the future is GP commissioning consortia, which in many cases will have locality arrangements underneath the consortia to bring about that symmetry. Third uh, key lesson is the ability of GP commissioners to both buy and to make where making is appropriate the issue that uh, was raised earlier about conflicts of interest, which I think is an unfortunate phrase. I know why we use conflicts of interest, but it has all these negative connotations. And for me, the real prize and potential, certainly for many GPs in being involved in GP commissioning, is the opportunity it creates to use control over commissioning to make more services in their own practices, in collaboration with other practices, to develop a more integrated model of care in the community uh, non-hospital uh, setting. Now, there will need to be proper oversight and scrutiny. There are procurement rules which will have to be followed. I just hope that as the detail is put in there, it doesn't tie up GP commissioners and a lot of red tape, which inhibits the innovation which will occur if those make-buy decisions can be uh, taken within GP commissioning consortia. Fourth point is the critical importance of secondary care involvement as well as a full range of people from within primary care and community services. If you look across the pond, most of the medical groups, certainly that I'm familiar with, they are multi-specialty medical groups. They are not simply family physicians who network together to take on capitated budgets and take on risk. And at the moment, that is not what the white paper or indeed the consultation document is suggesting. It's not ruling out, and I think Lord Howe referred to this in his presentation this morning, the importance of secondary care clinicians advising working alongside GP commissioning consortia. But surely the model of care we need to develop is much more uh, the model that one of the questioners raised this morning, how you get much more clinical integration through hospital-based specialists and teams working alongside primary care teams in the models of provision that may emerge on the back of GP commissioning and GP consortia. And you see this in the States, not just in the multi-specialty medical groups, but also in the alliances you get between some of those groups and the hospitals that they work with, physician-hospital integration, uh, virtual, not real, we're not talking about creating mega-monopolies here, but there is clear merit in doing that where it enables you to um, uh, introduce models of care which are, are more effective. My fifth uh, point is the importance of partnership, uh, again, in the states between the medical groups and the capitated budgets they have and the health plans that they often work with 
in receiving those capitated budgets and delivering care to the patients and the members that they serve. And I've visited a number of uh, the big health plans, particularly in Massachusetts around Boston, because it happens that the medical groups there are especially well-developed, as they are in California and some other states. And the arrangement that I've heard described in, in, in Massachusetts is an arrangement where the medical groups do take on the risk of capitated budgets, but they work in partnership with the health plans. The health plans take the responsibility for negotiating price with the big specialist hospitals, defining quality standards and performance of those secondary and tertiary care providers, doing a lot of the back office stuff around invoicing and paying bills and uh, that uh, activity, uh, feeding back real-time information to the medical groups about how they're using the services uh, that they have the capitated budgets for, and also going beyond that to provide support around utilisation review, uh, case management, and the other things that are needed, uh, going back to what Shane was saying about how we improve out-of-hospital care. So it requires a partnership between a health plan uh, that carries out some of those functions and medical groups willing to take on risk. We're removing SHAs, we're removing PCTs, which potentially could perform the health plan uh, type role. And so it raises for me a question about, is that the right thing to do? Who will fill the gap that might exist as a consequence? But it leads into the sixth point I wanted to make, which is where will be the capacity for what I would call local systems leadership under our arrangements? Uh, we know that there are many things that can be done really well, much better by GP commissioners through consortia arrangements. But I would suggest there are some things that will be done less well at that level. If we're talking about how we achieve better outcomes by uh, concentrating certain services like stroke services or trauma services in fewer centres, then that's come about in London and Manchester and other places through a degree of planning and systems leadership which PCTs individually or collectively have brought to bear. I'm not at all clear where local systems leadership rests in the NHS in the future, post-2013. And that, I think, is a cause for some concern. The last point I want to make, because I'm conscious I'm running out of time, is not so much a lesson from uh, previous NHS experience or indeed from across the pond, uh, but it is about some of the real potential in GP uh, commissioning consortia for improving the quality of primary medical care practice itself. I think the intriguing prospect opened up by the consultation document and the detail there is that if a proportion of practice income is going to be dependent on consortia performance and a quality premium is going to be payable uh, based on that performance, not through extra money, but we're talking about using existing funds differently because there is no extra money, that, for me, changes the whole dynamic uh, within uh, general practice in the sense of opening up much more possibility for real, serious peer comparison of performance, peer review, and ultimately peer pressure to achieve change, to reduce variation, perhaps to achieve more standardisation or conformity in line with consortia-developed approaches, not just what individual practices wish to do or choose to do. So could GP commissioning end up having a bigger impact on primary medical care provision than perhaps on the commissioning of secondary care with the opportunities this creates? And then how many uh, 
how many talented and, and brave GP lead, leaders are there who will, who will step up to the plate on all this to take on that job of challenging their peers, driving up standards in a way which I think could be really beneficial around the objectives that Lord Howe was talking about, but uh, is new and quite frightening territory given the history of general practice and primary medical care so far. So just some questions for discussion. Thanks.